I am so honored to lead forward and provide an example for all those women out there who haven't yet seen the labor movement as a pathway for them. And the best way we can honor Rich is by continuing to fight for the things he spent his life fighting for. And that is to give working people a voice and to make sure that everyone in this country has a good, sustainable job. I think we're at a very interesting crossroads. We have the potential for organized labor. I don't want to say resurgence, because organized labor never went away. I guess the growth of organized labor is very positive. I realize that almost every person I am talking to is actually an American laborer. That is, they worked their whole lives for a paycheck from some employer. And yet, we laborers know very little about our own history because our bosses control all of our sources of information. Being a part of the Central Labor Council has just opened my eyes to all the differences, yet all the similarities that the skilled craftsmen and the workers and the laborers have together. And it's wonderful to listen to their experiences. It's been a tough year and we need that community to keep us all together and to keep us sane. He wrote this book initially in 1972. Uh, he really had to do a lot of tedious research to get the uh, material for the book. But he's done a number of revisions, the most recent one in 2020, and he actually did the mass movements like Black Lives Matter, Occupy Wall Street, and um, I think it's amazing what Jeremy has done in terms of this book. It used to be a great place to work, as Darlene stated, until Mondelez took over. When the sky shifted hands and Mondelez took over, you could see the morale and the plan has just gone down here. But that's our good friend Scabby. We blew him up uh, multiple times at our rallies that we've had outside the Cinevis main gates. Uh, they've put up snow fence, so we can't blow him up, but we managed to find spots where he will fit. He gets attention, and they don't like him. That's for damn sure. So I got to the point where I could, I guess that's what it was, just like drawing a lot and like trying to find ways to make art functional and like mm -hmm. how does it pop out? Especially in the, the age of like the social media, like how do you make art pop out in a feed? You're hanging out on the streets. Anyone can stop by and see it. It kind of sounds like a rock band, but it's also sort of theater. It's, um, I, people are just interested in what it is, and people are a little confused, which I love. Welcome to the Labour Radio Podcast Weekly, our tour of the now more than 130 shows that are part of the Labour Radio Podcast Network. They're all available for your perusal at labourradionetwork.org. At the top of this week's show, we'll start with Radio Labour and hear from Liz Schuler, President of the AFL-CIO, as she brings us up to speed on the Federation's current priorities in Washington. Sticking with the AFL, State of the Union's podcast is back after an extended hiatus. Tim Schlittner and new co-host Carolyn Bob are on hand to interview Secretary of Labour Marty Walsh. Then we visit a selection of special Labour Day shows from the past week. On the Workers' Beat Extra, host Gene Lance muses on both the past and the present of the Labour movement. On Working to Live in Southwest Washington, Harold and Shannon ask stagehands Jane Causey, bus driver Jim Bennett and teacher Marge Hogan, what's in your tool bag? Volunteers at the Heartland Labour Forum describe their favourite labour books in this week's show. Then striking Nabisco workers from the Richmond, Virginia plant visited this week's Building Bridges and described how the Mondelez takeover changed both the quality of the product and the quality of the job. Ryan Tucker from Labour's Local 329 joined Dan Denton on the Blue Collar Gospel Hours Labour Day livestream for a chat about Scabby the Rat and rallying for unions and against plant closures. Visual artist and musician Charles Ray Hastings, also known as Solomonk, checked into My Labour Radio and discussed art in the age of social media and the Labour's involved in working a bar with Mark Gavart. Then finally, on Your Rights at Work, we learn about Working a Musical, 
the exciting new production inspired by the work of Studs Terkel and created by Working in DC and the Labour Heritage Foundation. This is Patrick Dixon with the Labour Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's this week's show. Solidarity News on Radio Labour. This is a Radio Labour report recorded on Monday, September 6th, 2021. I'm Mark Belanger. As workers in the United States and Canada celebrated Labour Day on September 6th, unionists in the U.S. were looking forward to growing the labour movement. New legislation making it easier for workers to join unions, the PRO Act, is being debated in Congress. And for the first time in its 65-year history, the FLCIO, the largest labor federation in the U.S., is headed by a woman. Liz Schuller became president of the federation after the death of Richard Trumka in August. Ms. Schuller was asked on American television about Mr. Trumka and becoming the first woman president of the AFL-CIO. Rich used to say all the time that he appreciated having a woman partner right alongside him because we do bring different strengths, different styles of leadership. And, you know, being in the labor movement, we are half the labor movement. Not many people realize the labor movement is the largest organization of working women in the country, six and a half million women. So I intend to stand on the shoulders of those giants, the women who have come before me, the women who led those strikes and were on the picket lines, and also the quiet strength of women in the workplace who have been leaders in every workplace around our great country. And I am so honored to lead forward and provide an example for all those women out there who haven't yet seen the labor movement as a pathway for them. The best way we can honor Rich is by continuing to fight for the things he spent his life fighting for, and that is to give working people a voice and to make sure that everyone in this country has a good, sustainable job. And right now on Capitol Hill, we're debating investment. Uh, We know with the Budget Reconciliation Act, we're looking at investments in families, in working people, in infrastructure. And we are absolutely committed to making sure that those are good union jobs. So I think we have a lot of work on our plate, certainly with infrastructure, the Voting Rights Act that we know needs to be passed because our democracy is under attack. And we want to keep fighting for the PRO Act, which is the labor law reform that we believe now will be named after Richard L. Trumka, the Richard L. Trumka PRO Act. We are laser focused on continuing that fight on Capitol Hill, but more importantly, in the streets and on the ground. We have a grassroots movement in every state, in every major city in this country, and working people have had enough. They know the labor laws are broken in this country. And when you try to organize a union, you're fired, you're discriminated against and harassed. And that needs to change. So we need the PRO Act to make sure that people who want to come together and have a voice on the job and fight for better wages and better benefits and a decent living to support their families can do it without fear. So we're going to continue to uh, push forward uh, you know, on Capitol Hill, of course. But as I said, through this grassroots movement that we've built, Uh, that is unlike any other in the country. And that's it. International labor news you can use. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. This is State of the Unions. I'm Tim Schlitner. And I'm Carolyn Bob. We want to welcome you back to the podcast, State of the Unions. It's been a while. We've missed you. We're excited to be back. Our last episode was on March 18th, 2020. And as you know, all hell broke loose. It's been a difficult year plus in so many ways. We're going to get into some of that throughout this podcast and podcasts to come. But I want to start by welcoming our new co-host. She was a guest co-host on our last episode on March 18th, 2020. Carolyn Bob, the AFL-CIO Deputy Communications Director. Carolyn, welcome. 
Yes, and I just want to note that there was a lot less controversy than with the Jeopardy new host. So we're starting off on a good foot, and I'm excited to be here after listening to all of the episodes. I think we're going to have a really great time and teach some people some stuff and learn a lot, too. So we're excited that our guest interview today is a member of the labor movement, but also happens to be the secretary of labor. Marty Walsh to be joined today for our Labor Day special by the proud union member, Secretary Marty Walsh. Secretary Walsh, thank you for being here. Thank you, Tim and Carolyn. I appreciate it. How do you see the state of the labor movement today? I think we have work to do. I mean, I think we have a lot of work to do. I've said this as I've gone around the country as Secretary of Labor or in my other positions. It's incumbent upon the labor movement, the local unions, to do a lot of the work as far as creating more opportunities, more union density, organizing, signing contractors, doing that type of organizing that they're used to doing, advocating on behalf of their members, educating their members. Even if you have a PRO Act passed or you have some different collective bargaining piece legislation passed, it's still going to come down to the leadership of the unions. And I think that that's ultimately what people have to do as far as building those relationships in your community, building those relationships with your industries and moving forward. And I think that we do have a lot of work to do in saying all that. I think we're at a very interesting crossroads. We had the potential for organized labor. I don't want to say resurgence because organized labor never went away. I guess a growth of organized labor in a very positive manner. I mean, organized labor fights for social justice. Organized labor fights for diversity. Organized labor also obviously fights for the collective bargaining and better wages and health care and pensions and things like that. But when you're talking about where we are at this moment in time in our country, where you have communities of color that are underrepresented in so many different areas, organized labor is an opportunity to step in there and, and help change that narrative. I've said this many times as a state representative, I, I vote on pay equity. I don't know how many times every year we vote on pay equity. Everyone felt good about it, but when you look at the numbers, we have not reached equity in society, women and men. Collective bargaining takes care of that. You get paid the same rate for the work you do. There's a space for labor to kind of step into at this moment in time to advance and grow and grow in a good way. People shouldn't be afraid of that. People should be embracing that. Are you heartened by some of the strike activity and other collective action that's going on across the country? Well, you need that. You need to do that. You need to do the striking. And I think that's all important that's going on. I'm trying to work on a situation now with the union from my home state, and we're trying to resolve the issue. And it seems to me that when you start a strike, when you do a negotiation, wherever you stand, you can blame any side. But when workers are on the sidewalk striking, there's a complete breakdown there in the negotiation. And I think that I need to try and do a better job. We need to try and do a better job as a country to try and get companies and unions to stay at the table, get the negotiation done. Once you hit the streets, it's almost too late and it takes years to recover from that. And that doesn't help companies and that doesn't help the union. I do think it's important that both sides stay at the table. And then there's different strikes for different reasons. I mean, that's just a blanket statement I just made there. But there's different strikes for different reasons uh, in this country. More often than not, you don't see a strike. The negotiation happens. The agreement is signed and workers don't lose any of their money. And there's no bad feelings. There might be some hot feelings at the negotiating table, but it doesn't go that way. So there's far more of that going on in our country right now than the strikes. There's certainly some big strikes going on in our country. And there's strikes for different reasons. Some are safety strikes. Some are strikes over collective bargaining. And there's many reasons why workers end up on the sidewalk. Thank you. Thank you so much. We've been talking with Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh. Carolyn, thank you. This My pleasure. Great you. conversation. Great conversation. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, Carolyn. And it's awesome. And happy Labor Day to everybody. Happy Labor thank Day. Thank you, All too. right. Keep up the good work. This is Gene Lance on the Workers' Beat Extra. I have been in the labor movement on the labor side of the struggle for more than 50 years. Every year around Labor Day, I'm given opportunities to talk about labor significance and history. It always seems a little bit odd because I realize that almost every person I am talking to is actually an American laborer. That is, they worked their whole lives for a paycheck from some employer. And yet, we laborers know very little about our own history because our bosses control all of the TV, all the movies, the books, the newspapers, the radio, and all of our sources of information. But once a year at least, someone asks me to talk, and I am extremely grateful for the chance. This year, I'll be speaking for the College of Complexes on the Thursday before Labor Day, and on Sunday before Labor Day, I'll be speaking to a Unitarian organization. 
And of course on Labor Day, I have a small part in the Labor Day program that will be presented by the AFL-CIO. What really matters in labor history is how well we organize, how thoroughly we organize, and how long we're able to organize. That's the framework that I will use. So let's talk about how unions are organized. Most union locals are organized around a single shop or point of production. Above the union local level are conglomerates of unions that we workers usually call the international. There's an international union of auto workers, for example, and those international unions facilitate the fortunes of their locals because they have hundreds of thousands of members. They can also be a powerful political force. Most of the internationals subscribe for a very tiny fee to the American Federation of Labor Committee for Industrial Organizing, the AFL-CIO. That's the Federation for All Labor Unions in America. By joining together, organized labor can have a profound effect on politics and culture. And organized labor would do very well if we only had to fight the employers. But unfortunately, the employers have also organized. Some of their organizations are really visible, and there are many of them, are part of what we call dark money. That's not what hurts us the most in working people. What really hurts us the most among working people is the government, where the employers organized to have the government put muzzles and reins on the labor movement. They were particularly worried about the powerful railroad unions that had already tried more than once to stop all commerce. Congress passed the Railway Labor Act in the 1920s. At the end of World War II, American workers organized more unions and had more union actions than ever before. Wages shot up and significant political advances were made and the American people achieved the highest living standards in the world. The employers and their governments struck back hard. New regulatory laws were passed to undermine the unions, and they were successful. New union organizing petered away. Progressive causes were put aside. Internationalism was just forgotten about. America's unions settled into a long period of isolation from other workers. American work went offshore. Unions withered away from having 35% of all American workers and unions down to the present 11% or less. Change is slowly being forced on the labor movement. By the 1980s, I think a lot of working people had figured out that they couldn't just uh, buck the employers and the government both. And so they began to change the way they were doing things. This, this became uh, real noticeable among the steel workers back in 1980s, even in the 1970s. In 1995, for the first time in over 100 years, the outgoing AF of LCIO leadership did not get to choose their own successors. They elected new leadership, and some of that leadership was quite important. In August of 2021, less than two weeks ago, the AF of LCIO elected a top leadership consisting of two African-American men and one woman. Liz Schuler, the new president of the AFL-CIO, told labor leaders in her first talk to us, quote, Labor Day is when we raise our voices. And that explains how I happen to be here with you today, lifting mine. This is Gene Lance on the Workers' Beat Extra. Hello, working people of Southwest Washington. You're listening to episode 22 of Working to Live in Southwest Washington, produced by the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council. And I'm Shannon Myers. And I'm Harold Phillips. I couldn't be happier that we're going to release this show on Labor Day weekend. This show came from a working person right here in our community who came to us with an idea our first guest, Jane Corsey. Thanks so much for joining us, Jane. 
Thank you so much, Harold, for having me. What idea did you bring to us? All of us come to the jobs with our own special skills and knowledge, but we also come with tools in our tool bag. And it's really interesting to find out what's in your specific tool bag? Because my tool bag is getting heavier in every year and I've got some really funky things in there. Jane, what do you do? I am a member of IATSE Local 28 and that stands for the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. And I am a union stagehand journeyman and I work at several venues around the city. As a well-rounded stagehand, you have to know a little bit about everything. Someone else who has to know a lot about his job is Jim Bennett. Jim, thanks for joining us. Hey, good evening, Harold. I'm Jim Bennett, ATU757, and I work as a bus driver out of C-Tran in Vancouver, Washington. I also want to introduce Marge Hogan. Thanks for joining us, Marge. Hi, yeah, Marge Hogan. I'm from Evergreen Education Association. I'm a teacher at Union High School. I teach Spanish. I thought it was funny that this episode came up when you asked me about it, because every year at the start of the year, I try to figure out how to carry on my person the things that I need when I'm walking around the classroom. So it's something to reflect on for me, that that tool belt idea. That's what we want to talk about during this show is your kit. But when we talk about our kit, we're not necessarily talking about a bag that we take to work. Maybe we are. But we're also talking about the various tools of our trade that are in our workplace. Let's name one non-specialized thing in your kit that you think someone else has, but not everybody else. One thing that I think about, especially in this transition coming back to school, is the hyper-awareness that you need being in a room full of 33 (laughs) other people when you're gauging how they're doing on the material, but also just gauging, is anybody feeling overwhelmed? Is anybody too stressed out? So I think that level of hypervigilance of, is everybody okay right now? I know that our bus drivers in our district, their PSE members, our bus drivers experience that same thing tenfold. Yeah, it's like having your own little audience riding around behind you. And there's been lots of changes within our industry. It's a balancing act, being patient with people because masks is a touchy subject and we require masks. All the operators have to wear them while we have passengers on board. We also have to inform, not enforce, but it can create some contentious moments while you're driving day to day. And with the new shields, they, they protect the drivers a lot more, but it makes it harder to see what's going on in the back of the bus. It's been an interesting year. In the transit industry, assaults are up, ridership's a little down, but the percentage of assaults are up just because everybody's on edge. Some of the funny things that are in my toolkit, I have extra ice shoes, little things to put on the bottom of my shoes when I'm doing an ice show or knee pads when you're putting in carpet. All these little things add up over the years. That's why my toolkit has gotten bigger and bigger. There are other things, courtesy, and sometimes just a little please and thank you on the job work so well when you're working with so many different people. So there's all kinds of different things in the toolbox that we should use more often. When Jane's talking, I'm thinking about everything that we do to try to lift each other up as workers. Working in the classroom can sometimes be isolating you to have some autonomy during the day, but it also means that there might be people out there in my building who haven't seen another adult uh, all day long, or we're so into the curriculum that we forget to have adult conversations during the day. So going out and just showing that courtesy, lifting each other up is super important. So <laughs> it's Labor Day weekend. Let's think about some of the stuff we've been talking about. What does the differences and the similarity in our kits say to the working people who are listening to this show It shows how we support each, you know, in good times and in bad times. It's important to have that community relationship with other people, even though we're in different unions and we have different skill sets and different careers. Being a part of the Central Labor Council has just opened my eyes to all the differences, yet all the similarities that the skilled craftsmen and the workers and the laborers have together. And it's wonderful to talk about it, to listen to their experiences. Like Jim said, it's been a tough year and we need that community to keep us all together and to keep us sane. Jane Corsi, Marge Hogan, James Bennett, happy Labor Day. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Harold. Thanks, Shannon. Thanks, Shannon. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Shannon and Harold.
And thank you, working people, for joining us on another episode of Working to Live in Southwest Washington, produced by the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council. So, folks, happy Labor Day! We'll see you soon. You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. Tonight, we've asked some of our volunteers to name their favorite books about workers in the labor movement. We think you'll like the colorful variety of what they've chosen. I'm Tino Scalisi from the Heartland Labor Forum. My favorite book of this year that I've read was Flamethrowers by Rachel Kushner. The Flamethrowers follows a female artist in the 1970s. And while writing the book, Kushner drew on personal experiences during and after colleges, as well as her interest in, quote, motorcycles, art, revolution, and radical politics. The plot of the book, it focuses in the 1970s in New York, and there's this young motorcyclist artist uh, girl who grew up in San Francisco and who moves to New York, and she ends up falling in love with another motorcycle guy. And as it turns out, he was also the son of a automotive parts empire in Italy. They fall in love, and she goes out to meet his family in Italy. And at the time, there is labor unrest going on at the Fiat Motor Company. And the unrest that happens there turns out into a strike, which leads into a citywide strike, which leads to a national movement. If you get a chance to read this book, I suggest you go pick that up. Um, You can do that anywhere. It's a release from Simon & Schuster. Or you can go to her website, which is www.rachelkushner.com. Thanks so much, guys. Judy Morgan is also into strikes. Maybe that's because she went to jail during the Kansas City teacher strike in the 1970s. Judy, tell us about some strikes. <laughs> it's, it's been an interesting topic to me. And Judy, you asked me to come back on Heartland Labor Forum after I termed out as a state rep. And uh, I had one stint before for a while, and I really enjoyed it. I like working with you and all the other um, volunteers. So Strike was one of the books that you suggested that we uh, interview the author. So I had a chance. Uh, I volunteered to do that and had a chance to interview Judy. Jeremy Brecker, and he's amazing what he did. So reading this book, Jeremy actually took mass strikes, starting with the railroad workers in 1877 Mm -hmm. in our country, and basically chronicled all these strikes. He wrote this book initially in 1972, when there was very little, uh, he really had to do a lot of tedious research to get the uh, material for the book. But he's done a number of revisions, the most recent one in 2020. So he brought it up to date, and he actually did the mass movements like Black Lives Matter, Occupy Wall Street, the Fight for 15, which is one that's really dear to many of us, and then the teacher strikes, the more recent teacher strikes. And, of course, I was very interested in those. And I think it's amazing what Jeremy has done in terms of this book. I want to recommend one book that I think is a must read for the contemporary labor movement. It's Secrets of a Successful Organizer from Labor Notes by Alexandra Bradbury, Mark Brenner, and Jane Slaughter. You can get it at labornotes.org. Whether you wanna organize your fellow workers or agitate and mobilize them or take up some community issue, this book has It has great how-to lessons. It's got chapters on power, one-on-ones, mapping the workplace and its leaders, picking an issue, how to conduct a campaign, and more. There's a Spanish version, too. I want to thank all the people, all the volunteers who participated for their book ideas and for their wonderful music. And I will post my six, or now it's seven, actually it's eight favorite labor books on our Facebook page. Just look for the Heartland Labor Forum Facebook page and stay tuned for Safety First. You have been listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. Tune in every Thursday evening to the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 o'clock or to our Friday morning rebroadcast at 5 o'clock right here at... 90.1 90.1 FM KKFI.
Building Bridges with Mimi Rosenberg and Ken Nash. No contracts, no snacks, say Nabisco workers on strike in five states. They don't care about frontline workers. They only care about the almighty dollar. We're tired of getting stepped on and treated like trash. We've had enough, says striking Nabisco worker Rusty Lewis. We're joined now by three of the strikers from the Richmond, Virginia plant, Darlene Carpenter, Janelle Lambert-Watkins, and Christine Brown. Members of Local 358 of the Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco Workers, and Grain Millers Union. We're talking to Nabisco workers on strike in five states over pensions and outsourcing. And the first question is, should I throw away my Oreos, throw away my Ritz crackers until you as workers get what you want and need? Yes. Absolutely. Yes, yes, you should. Absolutely. Would we carry that through and say that we're, we're actually telling people to boycott the company until such time as they give the workers their just due? Yes. yes. Absolutely. Okay. Well, you heard it here. No more Ritz, no more Oreos until the workers are compensated as they deserve to be. Janelle and Christine, both of you also talk about daily, what it's like to work. I mean, to get some sense of the kind of the pride that people go to work with and the blood, sweat, and tears that people like yourself have put into the Nabisco plant where you work for for decades now. It used to be a great place to work, as Darlene stated, until Mondelez took over. When it started shifting hands and Mondelez took over, you could see the morale in the plant has just gone down here. People, damn, they don't care. You know, they come to work and they do their job, but they don't care about the quality of the product like it used to be. Because the management don't care. We go to them and tell them, this not looking right. They tell you to run it anyway. When you tell them, no, I can't run this because my family eat this, they be tell, oh, you're going to run this because I said so. The quality of the product is not the way it used to be because their focus is getting out numbers as opposed to getting out quality product. And, and tell them what your job is, is, is like on a day-to-day basis, the the labor, the energy that you put in, what's it like? I go to um, get up at 2 o'clock in the morning, and I live an hour and 45 minutes away. I'm happy to get up and go to work, but when Mondelez has taken over, it's like I hate to get up now, but I know I have a job to do, and I'm going to do that job regardless. But I'm not looking for no pat on the back. It's just that doing your workers some justice, and this the thanks we get. You want to take all our benefits away. You want to pay us uh, low pay. You want to do everything to us but the right thing. I make the ingredients, mix the ingredients up, and I love doing what I do. I rotate different lines every day and make sure the product is standard, the highest standard it could be. Now, I can't speak for everybody else in the plant, but we all try to make sure that that cookie is what the consumer wants. Darlene Carpenter, Janelle Lambert, Watkins, Christine Brown, Nabisco strikers from the Richmond, Virginia plant stay strong and will boycott those Nabisco snacks made in Mexico until you all receive a fair contract. This has been Building Bridges with Ken Nash and Mimi Rosenberg. Hey, everybody. My name is Dan Denton. I'm the host of the Blue Collar Gospel Hour. I'm also a uh, UAW member in Toledo. And happy Labor Day. Welcome to our live stream. We've got a couple of special guests with us today that are going to talk about some important issues going on and talk about the importance of supporting our local unions and why local unions are important to our community. We've got Ryan Tucker, a laborer's local 329 apprentice and activist. Tap just called him and said maybe he shifted to the organizer. Ryan has been a vocal leader for our campaign against Sonovas. Even though Ryan has only been a member for three years, he knows we must organize like hell to keep our jobs local. Hey, Ryan, how you doing, man? Pretty good. And yourself? Oh, man, I'm doing all right. I'm uh, honored to be here. Honored to be talking to you today, man. Happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day. Since your uh, face is on the big screen here now, 
Uh, you've got this uh, really impressive background behind you with a giant rat. Tell us what that rat's doing, man. That's uh, that's our good friend, Scabby. We blew him up uh, multiple times at our rallies that we've had outside the Cinevis main gates. Uh, they've put up snow fence, so we can't blow him up, but we managed to find spots where he will fit. This one was directly across the street from the main gate, and he gets attention, and they don't like him. That's for damn sure. Tell us why his name is Scabby, will you? His name is Scabby, I believe, because while well, he's a rat, he's taking good-paying union jobs away for low wa low wages, and he's just making the working conditions worse than what they are, which is what rats do. They make conditions incredibly worse than what they are. Yeah. So to be clear, Scabby, so a scab is a common name for a person that takes a union man's job. Correct. So what, tell us a little bit about what you've been a part of and, and the activities you've helped with, Ryan, if you will, and what your role's been. I was at the Lima Refinery. I've been out there for roughly three years. I've seen a handful of shutdowns take place. And every year I've seen since my time in that it's getting uh, more and more non-union. And as a union member, that was very concerning to me. As a person that lives literally three miles down the road from the plant, actually when the plant sirens go off, I can hear it from my house. Um, living that close to the place actually was very concerning to me knowing that they're bringing these people in from other areas of the country and knowing that they really frankly don't care about this area many of them didn't even know this place existed prior to them hearing about the job and i heard about the rallies you know that are taking place and the activities that taft was putting together at our hall and with the d-rock guys and it sparked my curiosity and I went and checked it out and I realized that these guys were onto something. And as a union member and as an apprentice, we take a pledge and an oath that we have to participate in all union activities. And that's what I started doing. And it was just hook, line and sinker from there. I've, I've been active, uh, very active in it. I've been very vocal about it. I make waves everywhere I go. And I really frankly don't care because if this was somebody else's job, they would probably feel the same way. But this is our livelihood. Josh made a comment about following in his father's foot, footsteps. My grandfather was a uh, IBEW and he worked out there in the um, 80s and 90s. And I, I may be a laborer, but I still want to follow in his footprints. So before you got into working there three years ago, what, what kind of work did you do? It was non-union work? I worked for a subcontractor for Honda. I was there for seven or eight years and I was topped out at $16. Prior to that, I worked for Walmart and I was topped out at $13 an hour. And Walmart, working for Walmart really opened my eyes. They have a, a week long training course that they make you go through and half the week, basically like three to four days, it's all anti-union propaganda and it, it kind of brainwashes you in a sense on not being for a union and it, it did the exact opposite for me really because it opened my eyes to the corporate greed knowing that there was one store in the history of walmart that was unionized and shortly after it was unionized and the corporation found out about it they closed it down fired everybody and built a brand new store across the street and that just, to me, that's wrong. Yeah. Solidarity forever, guys. Uh, happy Labor Day. And uh, happy Labor Day. I, I appreciate you guys giving me your time today. And now, here's your next episode of My Labor Radio. All right. Thanks, everybody. This is Mark, your host on My Labor Radio. Thank you for joining us. This episode, we're going to talk with Charles Ray Hastings, Jr. of Alabama. And we're talking about his book specifically. We talk about some art things he's done. We talk about his music stuff. But we also talk about this collection of prayers from Herbert Birchfield, who's a fictional character in the world of writer and artist Charles Ray Hastings, Jr. And he works under the moniker of Solo Monk. He writes and creates books, he records music, he does animation and visual art stuff, he delivers stuff for charities. He's a wonderful guy, well-rounded artist who understands the struggle of working families, and you'll find that out in the interview. The book is titled Capital Kenosis. Let's get to the conversation with Solo Monk. 
just to be able to watch you unveil that art and do it like that. Talk about how you get to the point where you're doing this kind of art. Where did you really start? What what was the first art stuff you really took off with? Well, uh, I've always drawn since I was a kid, but what, what kind of sharpened my skills is I used to tour in a band and mm-hmm. it was uh, cheaper for me to do the merch design than uh, let other people cost effectiveness thing Total or whatever. No, no brainer. Absolutely. You right. send and, the product to them. You print this quick. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, the turnover is quicker. Uh, and also you build like a, a general, like a uh, visual lexicon or whatever. Yeah. And it helps with your brand, I guess. So right. I got to the point where I could, I guess that's what it was. just like drawing a lot and like trying to find ways to make art functional and like, mm-hmm. how does it pop out? Especially in the, the age of like the social media, like how do you make art? pop out in a feed like with you're competing yeah. with everything everything mm-hmm. as soon as you got something the next thing pops up ahead of it so yeah. it's over with most of my work experience is in restaurants mm-hmm. uh, oh, yeah. you said you were a cook for a while too yeah yeah i was a yeah. cook and a bartender which is <laughs> no bueno <laughs> no Getting paid like four dollars an hour to show up three hours yeah. before a shift and like uh detail clean a, a whole bar you know yeah only and, to and watch it just get trashed hours later to do and it again. You have to clean it up again. And yeah, I listen to people say, Oh, to be a bartender, you just got to do this psychology work and talk to people. No, not even. That's just so, that's so movie like. That's not real yeah. life. You can make money if you're more manipulative, I guess, but I, you know, I, yeah. I'm not really like that. Why exploit your customers? Yeah, it does. <laughs> and you, you have these meetings all the time on how to who do your customers like over and over and over again. And, and the boss is like telling you to push stuff that people don't want. And you're mm-hmm. like, well, are we, are we here to comfort people or are we here to who do them? Like, what's the whole shtick? Are they my friends or is this a family atmosphere or are we like working people actively? Like, like we're Amazon or Walmart. Yeah. Or are we here to exploit the place? one customer we've got? You know, this person yeah. comes in every Tuesday at three 30. Why do we want to treat them that way? They came for what they wanted. They know what they want. I'm not here to try and sell them on this liquor. They know what they came for. It's the tap beer or whatever they're after. Leave them go. Yeah. Nobody wants the vanilla vodka or whatever. (laughs) That's why it's still sitting unopened. Exactly. (laughs) It's like, hey, we got to sell this bottle. It's like, you know why we're not selling that bottle? Because nobody likes it. It's always weird that capitalists uh, don't like it when the market tells them something. You they know? don't listen. Yeah. Yeah. They don't listen. They, they want to control the market. They don't. Free market is like an illusion. They, they're just working people. You know? Yeah. That was our interview with Solo Monk. He's a multimedia artist from Alabama, Charles Ray Hastings Jr. His current book is Capital Kenosis. As we talk to Solo Monk, he truly works and writes from his soul, and it's evident in all his artistic work, as I just spoke about. You can find him on Instagram at Church of Self, on Twitter at SoloMonk256, and on Twitch at SoloMonk256 to find out more. Thank you very much, Charles. Appreciate all your time. That was our interview with Solo Monk. stand together that's our theme for today right elise bryant that's right <laughs> here on wpfw a 9.3 oh you did the <laughs> station id slipped it right in there all right this is our annual labor day marathon chris garlic and elise bryant and i tell you i've been looking forward to the show all year and what a way to wrap up with our last segment on theater in the streets hey family welcome tonight is the official opening yes official opening of working in dc this is my question how did this come to you the issues that i care about are the things that i want to make art about and i care about labor justice i've always loved studs turkle's working the book and the musical excellent So we're going to take a a little break and listen to some music from the 2019 production, Working. So folks who are listening out there in radio land get a taste for the show. It's not what you're going to hear tonight at the opening, but it gives you a taste of the music. 
and the rest of my life. I had a customer once, tall as a smokestack. I sat down in front, felt like I was sitting in the back. He said, you better move that seat up, son. I'm almost seven feet. I said, mister, I'm never moving anybody's seat because I'm loving now the wizard. you're getting for the show people are really excited about the form what is this you're hanging out on the street anyone can stop by and see it it kind of sounds like a rock band but it's also sort of theater it's um people are just interested in what it is and people are a little confused which i love for generations that's all we done scrubbing my grandma my mama and me but my daughter she ain't gonna do no domestic work Mm -mm. I aim to be the end of that particular line. Mama worked just like a mama before her domestic working was a trade. There was laundress cook and the living help. Thursday girl, babysitter, and a hotel maid. They worked six days a week, all day long, and never could get out of debt. Those were the days when the minimum wage was anything you could get. Shut up. 
thank you for listening to this week's post-Labor Day edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. If you'd like to listen to full versions of any of the shows sampled today, or from any of the many, many others that we didn't quite have the space to fit in this week, they're available at laborradionetwork.org or by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. All of my favourites. Labour Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Mel Smith and myself, produced by Chris Garlock, and promoted on social media by our thespian friend in the West, Harold Phillips. For Labour Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Patrick Dixon. Hope to see you next time.